Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. This is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. This is the Health, Medicine, and Bioscience Edition. That's my job to find the top people in their field. That's why it's called Finding Genius. My goal is to find them, interview them, uh, ask them questions that hopefully other people haven't asked them. So you get a fresh perspective on what they do. And you as the listener uh, learn some really useful stuff that will possibly improve your life and, and your health, although there's no guarantees. So my goal, uh, those are my goals. And my uh, guest today is William J. Sullivan, PhD. Uh, he's a Showalter Professor of Pharmacology and Toxicology at Purdue, Indiana University. Last time uh, we talked, I interviewed him twice. This is the second time. We talked about his book, Pleased to Meet Me, Genes, Germs, and the Curious Forces that Make Us Who We Are. It's a really cool book. It's well-written. It's interesting. It's accessible. So I recommend it to listeners. And today we're going to talk about parasites because uh, Bill studies them and loves to talk about them. So one in particular called Toxoplasma gondii, which seems to affect a tremendous amount of people. So Bill, thanks for coming back. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Rich. Thanks for having me back on the podcast. It's always a pleasure to be here. Oh, good. So tell me, what's the, what's the, the history between you and uh, Toxoplasma gondii? How did you two meet and start uh, eyeballing each other in the lab? Oh, we go way back. Um, so that, that goes all the way back to my graduate school days when I was looking for laboratory rotations uh, to try to do the work that would ultimately uh, comprise my PhD thesis. So. Um, I had a long-standing interest in microbiology thanks to a wonderful advisor I had back in my undergraduate days named Dr. William Vale. And when I got to Penn in Philadelphia, where I did my graduate work, I became enamored with this rotation I did with a fellow named uh, Dr. David Roos in the biology department. He was working on this obscure parasite that I had never heard of, uh, as most people in the world haven't heard of it. And, but when I first saw it in the microscope, I was just utterly fascinated by it. You see these little banana-shaped uh, organisms squirming their way through fibroblast cells and then implanting themselves and then just growing exponentially until they literally blew that host cell apart because so many parasites were contained inside. So watching that process, I just became fascinated by how this creature does this and uh, what that means in terms of human health, and what David Roos was on the precipice of doing, which I was eager to contribute to, was turning toxoplasma into one of the first model systems for all of parasitology, meaning that we could do modern-day cell and molecular genetic techniques in this parasite, which normally you can't do for a lot of other parasites. It's just very difficult, or you can't grow them in the lab. So toxoplasma gave us um, an avenue to explore a whole bunch of different things and parasites that were never looked at before. So what kind of host does uh, toxoplasma go through? You know, what's the, the uh, intermediate host and the definitive one, and you know, what happens in each? Toxoplasma is pretty remarkable. Many people call it the most successful parasite on the planet because it can infect 
any nucleated cell in virtually any warm-blooded vertebrate. So for those of us in the know, in the parasite field, that's an astonishing feat. Most parasites have a single host, maybe two hosts that they fluctuate between. But toxoplasma can get into virtually any animal. So that's pretty remarkable. And then once it gets inside a nucleated cell, it begins to undergo the asexual stage of its life cycle. So it will uh, grow by binary fission, just kind of building two daughter cells within a single mother and uh, continue to replicate exponentially. So that's one facet of its life cycle that can occur in any cell. In the laboratory setting, we usually grow these in human fibroblast cell because they're really large cells. They can hold a lot of parasites. You can see them very easily inside. They make for a good laboratory model system. But out in the real world, toxoplasma likes to get into tissues like the brain um, because it can hide there from the immune system pretty effectively. And once it gets into um, like neurons or other cells where it doesn't want to replicate per se, it differentiates into a latent form, a dormant form that we call the bradyzoite, and it resides in these tissue cysts. This is still inside of a host cell. So as you can imagine by now, this creates incredible challenges uh, for drug treatments to try to get rid of this parasite. And in fact, there is no cure for the latent form of the disease, at least not yet. So you can have hundreds, maybe thousands of these parasitic tissue cysts within your brain and other tissues for the rest of your life. And those can also spread. So when those get into animals that we normally would eat, and if we don't cook the meat sufficiently, we can become infected with toxoplasma through those bradyzoite tissue cysts. So there's a lot to unpack here. Um, first, when toxoplasma enters a cell, how does it enter the cell without blowing open the cell membrane? It's a very tight squeeze, and it's pretty remarkable. You can probably Google images of this or find them in the scientific journals. But toxoplasma, it's an, it's an active invasion process, and the receptors are not fully elucidated yet. But once it binds to a host cell, it kind of pulls itself in. So there's another mode of um, how things get into cells called phagocytosis, but that doesn't appear to be what's going on here. Toxoplasma is actively penetrating and invading nucleated host cells. And it can accomplish this at incredible speeds, as short as like four to eight seconds, bam, it's in there and it's, and it's there to stay. So the invasion attachment process is not fully known, but when you Google these images, you will see the parasite kind of pinches its way into the host cell. It really squeezes its way in. And as it goes inside, it releases thousands of parasite protein into the host cell, some of which start to build a specialized vacuole that, paras that the toxoplasma parasite can live in. It kind of shields itself from the rest of the host cell and keeps it um, you know, concealed from the rest of the host cell, its own little house inside. Um, so that's, that's pretty much the invasion process right there. Well, what's the relative size? of TG uh, versus the cells that it, it affects? Is it a lot smaller? Oh yeah, good question. It is a lot smaller. Uh, we're talking two by six microns. So that's, that's a very uh, small uh, size, but obviously quite larger than like a bacterial cell. So it's a protozoan organism, but you do need a microscope in order to see it. And um, once it's inside and starts to replicate, the host cell, especially like a large cell like a fibroblast, 
can probably hold on the order of about a thousand parasites, maybe more. I would think uh, it's still relatively large and it would act as like sand inside the oyster or something. You know, the, the pressure inside the cell, for instance, I would think would change once it enters because uh, now you have more material yeah. stuffed into the same lipid bilayer, but maybe it's, maybe it's very flexible. I don't know. Do you see the cell react? Has that been observed under a microscope where the, um, the parasite enters and the cell all of a sudden reacts in some way? Does it release, uh, you know, a whole bunch of uh, extracellular vesicles or does it like wig out or rearrange or change shape? Uh, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> it, it does all kind of crazy things, um, some of which probably haven't been discovered yet. But you're right. You, you, you know, you kind of think it, it's got this thorn in its side. You know, the host cell's got this thorn in its side. There's this bubble inside that normally isn't there that is filled with growing parasites. So a number of things are going to happen by consequence to this host cell that my lab and many others have been trying to elucidate. So we'll try to unpack them all here as concisely as I can. One of the first things that happen, as I mentioned, is that there's release of thousands of parasite proteins into the host cell. And we have no idea at the moment what most of these are doing. Some of them seem to be going to the host nucleus, which is where the DNA is, and possibly changes the DNA expression of that particular host cell. And uh, some of these changes have been um, leaning towards it engages with the immune system or tries to evade detection in the host cell, strategies that you would normally expect a parasite to employ if it were to remain undetected in the body. So all that makes sense. But to be honest, there's a lot of parasite proteins that are injected into the host cell that we have no idea what they're doing just yet. On the way into the host cell, the parasite uses the host cell plasma membrane to build its parasitophorous vacuole, okay? So that's the specialized vacuole that the parasites live and grow in. And it's non-fusogenic, which means the host cell doesn't attack it. It doesn't fuse to it with its lysosomes. So it just sits there shielded from the rest of the host cell, presumably uh, largely undetected by that host cell, which gives the parasite yet another advantage. But a couple curious things do happen with that parasitophorous vacuole. Some groups have found that certain strains of the parasite will recruit host cell mitochondria. Those are the organelles that are the powerhouse of the cell. Those mitochondria get recruited to the outskirts of that plasma membrane that holds the parasites. And there's a couple reasons speculated as to why that might happen. One, it could be a source of ATP for the parasite, a source of energy, or it could be a way that the parasite could interfere with the signaling of the host cell. So there is some evidence that host cells, when they get invaded with the parasite, they want to apoptose, which is a self-destruct mechanism. But the parasite won't let them do that, partially because the mitochondria get recruited to the membrane. The parasite interferes with the mitochondria because that organelle can initiate the self-destruct sequence that I told you about. So there, there could be a number of different reasons why these organelles are recruited to the parasitophorous vacuole. Um, so well, I, I would think I, I that um, there's a lot going on. Yeah. Well, one, one thing that crossed my mind is since mitochondria are recruited to the, I guess, to the periphery of the cell, is that what you're saying? To the, to to the, the periphery, the, yeah, the outside of that parasitophorous vacuole. So it doesn't touch the parasites themselves. It touches their house. Oh, okay. I would think maybe they would put the um, mitochondria 
in a preferential place to receive incoming nutrients from the host. You know, when they enter into a yeah. cell, maybe they're lining them up right there so they can eat first. And then, yeah, that, and that makes perfect sense, Rich. The, the parasite clearly sequesters nutrients from the host cell. Most of these are small molecules, and the parasitophorus vacuole is porous enough for those small, small molecules to go through. My lab in particular has done a lot of work with arginine, which the parasite can't make on its own. So it has to get it from the host cell. And um, the trick that parasite, that, that toxoplasma kind of employs is, is kind of neat. As it starves the host cell of arginine and uses it for itself, it initiates a starvation stress response in the host cell. And uh, so the, the host cell is kind of starving for arginine because the parasite is sucking it all up. But during that host cell response, what happens is that a signal gets sent to the host nucleus to put more arginine transporters on the membrane of the host cell, which brings in more arginine for that host cell, which then the parasite gets to steal. So very clever strategy on the part of toxoplasma to initiate a starvation response in its host cell in order to get even more food. In my lab, we call it toxoplasma's way of, of ordering takeout to be delivered to its house. Does, does the, um, the toxoplasma vacuole or vesicle, whatever it is, does it sit on the edge of the cell that's attacked or is it floating in the middle? It seems to be anywhere. It can float anywhere inside of the host cell. It's not tethered to the host cell plasma membrane or the nucleus. It does seem to recruit the mitochondria and there's also studies that show it can associate with the host ER, the endoplasmic reticulum. Um, but that's not too surprising because the host endoplasmic reticulum is kind of all over the place. Oh, I was going to say, if it sticks right near the edge of the, uh, of the cell and infects, then it would be able to monitor the interior cell environment easily and monitor the exterior cell environment easily. That's why I thought maybe if that happens, that's what it was doing. Yeah, that would be a, a good theory. Um, but in a lot of the microscopic images I've seen, you don't see that parasitophorus vacuole hanging out too much at the plasma membrane. I think what it cares about most is sensing the intracellular environment of the host cell as a proxy for what might be going on outside. And it can also sense what type of host cell that it's in. For example, if it's in these fibroblast cells um, that we grow them in the lab, the parasite will just grow and grow and grow through its asexual replication. And then it bursts the cell open and then goes to invade neighboring cells. But if you put it into a neuron, okay, a brain cell, the parasite doesn't grow as fast. And in fact, it'll start converting into the tissue cyst. So it's almost as if the parasite knows what type of host cell that it's in. And that dictates whether the parasite continues to replicate or whether the parasite goes into a latent form. And the signaling as to how that happens has not been worked out. That's one of the things that my lab is very interested in because we wanna study this latent stage of the parasite because that's what's a roadblock to clinical treatment. But how it switches from growing to latency is largely not understood, but it's pretty neat that the parasite can sense somehow what type of host cell that it's in. Once you get inside of a cell, are there defense mechanisms or really it's outside the cell that the defense mechanisms exist? The, talk, the parasite doesn't seem to 
elicit a very strong immune response for a long period of time. So like if you were to infect a mouse with a, with a sublethal dose of the parasite, you'll notice the mouse gets a little scruffy, gets a little sick, might lose a little weight, but it recovers quite quickly, quite nicely, gains all the weight back and really doesn't have, it's no, you know, looks like it was never even touched, looks perfectly fine. It isn't until you start looking at their behavior that they start to look a little strange, but from a physical and weight perspective, uh, they look fine. The same thing apparently happens in humans as well. Uh, most humans won't even know that they're sick. They might feel like they have a mild cold or a flu, but the immune system gets the infection under control very quickly, and all we have left are the latent stages of the parasite, and they will sit in the host cells for the rest of the life of that host organism, uh, presumably, unless they become immune compromised, then the parasite will start growing again. What happens if a cell divides? Will they divide along with it? Will they, have you observed that? We have not looked at that because the host cells that we put them into have stopped dividing. We grow the host cells into um, what's called a confluent monolayer. So they contact one another, and when they contact one another, they stop growing. So what happens is you end up getting this lawn of host cells that then you can put the parasites on, and then they, they grow within. Um, it has been shown in the literature that if the parasite gets inside of a host cell, it can initiate a cell cycle arrest. So that means the host cell is locked into a certain stage of the cell cycle. And if that does happen, it's not going to divide anymore while the parasites are inside. Okay. Hmm. Interesting. So um, what if it enters a fast dividing cell and then those cells no longer divide? And then because of that, the cells, I guess they, I don't know if they've become senescent or just mixing terms here, or they've just become unable to function properly and that would signal the host something's going wrong. I mean, like what, what kind of cells do they preferentially enter into first? And again, do they divide fast or slow or not at all? No, sure. That's a great question. And um, kind of goes into the dissemination of the parasite, how it gets around the host's body and how it gets into all the different organ tissues. So it depends on the route of infection. So most people would probably become infected from oocysts excreted by a cat or bradyzoites that they ingest in contaminated meat. So the, par the first thing the parasite's going to do is encounter the stomach. So when they're in oocysts or the tissue cysts, it actually protects them from the stomach acid and allows the parasites to get down into the intestinal epithelium. So the first cells the parasite invades are probably those intestinal epithelial cells. And they'll probably just utilize those cells to bulk up their numbers. So they'll replicate within those cells and then lice them open, which means, you know, blows them apart and builds up the parasite bulk, builds up some parasite numbers. Now there's a lot of immune cells in your gut as well, and the parasite loves to get into those. And those happen to be dividing cells, so it kind of answers two questions at once here. When it gets into, let's say, a dendritic cell, which is one of the key cells of the immune system that normally gets rid of things like these parasites and, and bacteria and so on. But when it gets inside of a dendritic cell, um, a fascinating thing happens. It starts to move around a lot more. So these dendritic cells, as you can maybe surmise from the name, they send out these, these pseudopods, these feet, that kind of help them move around, much like the classic amoeba 
that you might be familiar with and how it kind of uses the large blob feet to advance across a substrate, dendritic cells kind of do the same thing. But when they're infected with toxoplasma, they move around a heck of a lot more. And um, this is really fascinating and has led to speculation that that's how the parasite gets around the body. It makes these dendritic cells move. When dendritic cells can do that, they can cross important barriers like the blood-brain barrier. And therefore, toxoplasma is essentially using that dendritic cell as a Trojan horse in order to get access to the brain. Yeah, I would think that each time um, the parasite, you know, lyses the cell or explodes the cell and it releases a whole bunch of the parasites, they have to quickly run and hide because at that point now their cover is blown and the immune system would come after them. So I guess they'd want to get back into a cell as quick as possible and then sneak around, you know, like with like a, a sheepskin over them or something, you know, sneak around the defenses. Mm -hmm. No, that's absolutely right. This is what we call an obligate intracellular parasite. So the parasite can only survive outside of the host cell for a very limited amount of time. And if it is in the bloodstream with a lot of immune cells, that's not a good thing if it doesn't have the shield of its host cell. So you're absolutely right. It wants to get inside of a host cell very quickly. And in fact, it can't replicate outside of a host cell. So that's a very critical component to the lytic stage of its life cycle. Have you um, sequenced the parasite's DNA, uh, depending on what cell it's in, and observed that to change? Or does it even have its own epigenetics, and does that change as it migrates throughout a host and takes on different forms? A lot of studies have been done looking at both changes in transcription of the parasite, as well as the host cell that it's in, and the different types of host cells uh, that it finds itself in. So these large-scale transcriptomics have been done. I don't mean to throw too much jargon out there, but basically looking at um, how transcription events change, infected versus non-infected, and in different cell types. People have done proteomic studies where they're looking at the, basically the uh, amount and type of proteins that are affected by the uh, invasion of the parasite. And uh, you asked initially about the genome, um, the parasite's genome has been sequenced for quite some time now, almost 20 years, and all that information is publicly available at a website called toxodb.org. Well, it was sequenced, but again, has anyone looked and, and sequenced it, you know, when it's in a dendritic cell and then sequenced it again in, uh, you know, when it's in a neuron and then sequenced it again in, uh, you know, a free state to see if there's any oh, changes? Yeah, sure. Well, the genome's not going to change under those circumstances. The genome is going to stay static unless there's a, you know, a, a freak mutation somewhere. What changes is the genes that are expressed. Uh, so you mentioned epigenetics a little earlier. Um, people are, are beginning to do those sorts of studies as well because our lab has made it clear that epigenetics is important for the transition from the growing stage of the parasite to the latent stage of the parasite. And others have shown that there's epigenetic changes taking place in the host cell as well. But we don't quite understand what they mean yet. So epigenetic changes are going to lead to changes in gene expression ultimately, and then ultimately in changes at the proteome level. So there's a whole cascade of events that are going on, and we are honestly in our infancy in trying to understand the complexities of the host pathogen interaction in terms of how they affect gene expression of one another. Yeah, I mean, like with your fibroblast, you could take a, an unaffected fibroblast and one that's been you know, entered into by, by TG 
and looked at their epigenetic expression and see what's the differences and I guess compare them. Oh, you compare them in a lot of ways. Yeah, and, and there's some studies that have been done with that already. So some of the ones that have been done in like neurons, uh, people see epigenetic changes or changes in transcription that typically are associated with the inflammatory response. And another intriguing one is um, a, 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 an acetylomic study that we have done where we found differences in protein acetylation. This is a chemical modification that occurs on proteins. When a, when a neuron, excuse me, we did this in astrocytes. When astrocytes are infected uh, with the parasite, that's another cell in the brain, the acetylation of their proteins change. And the group of proteins that was enriched the most in that analysis are ones that have been linked to neurological um, diseases like schizophrenia. So as you probably know, maybe your listeners do too, I'm not sure, toxoplasma in humans has been linked to schizophrenia, rage disorder, suicide, and another and a, a number of other neuropsychoses. So it's very interesting to see changes taking place in the host cell after infection with toxoplasma that overlap with the genes and proteins linked to those neurological disorders. Yeah, we haven't talked about the behavior changes uh, in mice. I guess from what I've read that uh, it makes them less fearful of cats. They're actually attracted to uh, to cat urine and they're setting themselves up to be eaten. Yeah, the behavioral changes are remarkable. They're striking and they're highly reproducible. But I want to uh, clarify some of what you said because uh, there's been some new studies coming out very recently that um, challenge the idea that toxoplasma is attracted to cat urine in particular. Um, it may be true, um, but what our group and others have found is that latent toxoplasmosis causes sustained chronic inflammation in the brain. And it's this neuroinflammation that is driving at least some of these behavioral changes in the host. So let's refine the discussion a little bit for understanding and just talk about mice for a minute. So as you said, when mice get infected with toxoplasma, and we're talking about the latent form, so they're not overtly showing symptoms, they're chronically infected, cysts are in their brain, those brains get inflamed. And uh, that is thought to drive behavioral changes like increased motility. So the mouse moves around a lot more, kind of very analogous in a way to what I mentioned with the dendritic cells earlier. But this is at a whole animal level. The mouse will literally run around the cage like it's mad. Um, we also see daredevil behavior in these mice. And there's just a general loss of anxiety and heightened exploratory behavior. It's not specific for cats. So these mice that are infected with toxoplasma certainly look like they're losing their fear of cats. But as we've done additional testing, okay, a new paper by Dominique Saldati Farve's group has shown that they're not afraid of anything, okay? It's not just cats specifically. They kind of lose their inhibition of fear for a wide variety of stimuli. So it may just kind of be, um, I guess, a happy accident in terms of the life cycle of the parasite that this neuroinflammation, one, increases the motility of the mouse and decreases its fear and increases its curiosity. You put all that together and it looks like the parasite uh, has engineered the brain in a way that is attractive to cats, but that's not precisely what's happening. Well, it seems like it makes it more likely to be eaten by something. 
to be preyed upon so that the parasite can continue on. Exactly. No but do you think even that's a stretch or no? No, I think that's, that's perfectly within the realm of, of uh, what evolution would probably favor. Because whether, you know, even if it doesn't get eaten by a cat, if it gets eaten by another predator, that's still good for parasite transmission. But how could evolution favor that? I mean, the organism itself wants to avoid that. But now, because of the parasite, it appears predisposed, you know, to be preyed upon. So that, that's like a completely contrary thing to what the organism would normally want. All its behaviors are normally geared towards preserving itself. Well, they, they, all these behaviors are geared toward preserving itself in the form of transmission. So I, I, I guess I don't see the, the contradiction here. So in one sense, you know, it does want to get into a cat because there it can undergo the sexual stage of its life cycle and be disseminated that way. But it can also be disseminated in the form of bradyzoites, you know, in animal flesh through predation. So either way, it's a win-win for the parasite, no matter how it gets consumed. So if it creates a behavior in a mouse that makes it get eaten by a cat or any other predator, that's going to be good for transmission, which makes evolutionary sense. Right, right. But again, the, the mouse preferentially now engages in risky behavior, which would make it more likely to be preyed upon. But that's contrary to what the mouse would normally want, oh, which is sure, odd. Oh, sure. You know, so. Okay, I get what you're saying. Right. But, um, you know, obviously the parasite doesn't care what the mouse wants. It just wants to spread throughout as many different hosts as possible. And by engineering a mouse that gets more excited around one of its major predators, the cat, it, it probably drives up, it enhances its ability to get to the sexual stage of its life cycle tremendously. So by initiating those behavioral changes in rodents in particular, I think that's probably going to be a really important factor in getting the parasite into the belly of a cat. The weird thing is how could the parasite know that? Know what part exactly? Uh, how, could it, how could it know that if uh, the mouse's behavior becomes more risky, that it's more likely to be preyed upon? Oh, it doesn't. How, how, could, how, could it, how could that? Why would that be deliberately engineered so reliably? Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's not deliberately engineered. The parasite doesn't have a conscious or a will. Uh, these are just happy accidents of evolution. So what happens is the parasite gets into the um, rodent, induces neuroinflammation, and that neuroinflammation happens to make that rodent more readily consumed by a cat. And then you have parasites that you know induce neuroinflammation getting into a cat and spreading that gene uh, throughout the parasite population. And then as that becomes more predominant in their population, you're gonna find a higher proportion of parasites doing this to the rodents. Mm, I see. So yeah, it's not something oh. that they consciously uh, sat back in the brain and thought of one day. It's just, uh, you know, that happened one time and it conferred a survival advantage and took off from there. And then the, um, the parasite, have you observed if there's any uh, viruses that that attack it depending on the host it's in? Oh, good question. To the best of my knowledge, no one has found a virus that infects toxoplasma. But that doesn't mean they're not out there. There have been viruses that infect a similar parasite called Imeria. Imeria is uh, in the same phylum as toxoplasma and it infects chickens, okay? And, it, you know, it undergoes the sexual stage of its life cycle in chickens. Actually, it's a, it's a big problem in agribusiness. Um, viruses have been found for Imeria, and um, Steve Beverly at Washington University has also found viruses that um, invade leishmania, if I'm not mistaken. But in terms of toxoplasma, no one's found one yet. What about uh, toxoplasma's interaction with our microbiome? You know, if it goes through the, if you eat it, 
you know, in, in infected meat, it goes into your stomach, survives there, now goes into the intestines. But it's in the neighborhood of ton of bacteria. Any interactions there, any infection of any of our gut bacteria, by TG, as well as our own cells. You have very limited knowledge on that topic. I think people are just starting to dive into that area. And there's a lot of different avenues one could go down. So um, the, the first of which is what happens when the parasite gets inside during the initial infection. How does that affect the microbiome during this acute infection? I don't believe that's known. But what would interest me even more is how the microbiome may have changed during chronic infection. So does the microbiome have a different composition in individuals or in mice that harbor tissue cysts in the brain and exhibit this low-level sustained neuroinflammation? How does that affect the gut? That is an extremely interesting question. And I often wonder if we're not like creating a Venn diagram here where the microbiome changes also feed into the behavioral changes that we might see in the animals. Yeah, there's a ton to look at. <laughs> so what, yeah, I've been asking my questions, but uh, let's return to what, what specifically is your lab working on now? What are you trying to figure out? Uh, we do a variety of things in my lab, but most of them are centered around the molecular switch that governs the growing stage of the parasite known as the tachyzoite, the ones that are replicating, and the ones that are asleep, the ones that are dormant. So that's a switch from tachyzoites to bradyzoites, the formation of these tissue cysts. No one really understands the molecular signals that drive this process, much less the signals that give rise to reactivation of infection, which is a critical problem in the immune compromise. So as the immune system deteriorates, these latent parasites start growing again. So in my lab, we identified an a cellular switch that involves a protein called EIF2. And the phosphorylation of this protein governs the rate-limiting step of protein synthesis. So this is an initiation factor for translation of RNA. So we found that in growing parasites, EIF2 is never phosphorylated, which makes sense because when it's not phosphorylated, the parasite can make a lot of proteins. But as the parasite goes latent, as these tissue cysts form, EIF2 gets phosphorylated, which slows translation down and favors preferential translation of mRNAs that are associated with the latent stage of the life cycle. And then when you reactivate the parasite, this EIF2 factor is dephosphorylated, okay? So what we found here is a cellular switch that seems to be really important contributor between controlling growth versus dormancy. And we've been investigating the molecular basis of that pathway and have come up with a number of drugs that interfere with it at some point or other that do seem to be effective in um, mouse models of infection. Oh, so the goal is to what, keep it in its slow stage or modulate it between stages as needed? That, that's the beauty of looking at this pathway because it works at both ends. So we found like kinase inhibitors that would prevent the phosphorylation of this factor. So those kinase inhibitors block the formation of the bradyzoite cysts. Now coming at it from the other angle, we found small molecules that can inhibit the dephosphorylation of EIF2. And those block the latent cyst from growing again. So you block reactivation of infection, 
which would be a wonderful prophylactic drug that you could perhaps give HIV's patients to prevent reactivation. So we're attacking it from both ends of the pathway, and it, you know, it has those two different clinical applications. And I guess, yeah, if you can keep it in its uh, more dormant stage for years, uh, that'll allow science to catch up and, and get rid of it, no matter what stage it's in. So I guess yeah, it's like a... ho- hopefully. Hopefully that'll be the case, because um, I, I don't know if I said it yet, but yeah, toxoplasmosis is incurable, and one-third of the world is infected with this parasite. So if the studies are true that this parasite can affect human personality and human behavior, this is not something that we want inside of our heads, but there's no treatment to get it out right now. Uh, so that's one of the things my lab is very um, interested in trying to devise, is a novel therapeutic that will either keep these cysts latent in the immune compromise, keep them from reactivating, or in otherwise healthy people, just clear the infection from the brain. Yeah. Well, Bill, this is excellent. I mean, there's so much to talk about with this. It's really cool. Now I see why you, you study it. Um, what What's the best way for people to learn more about it, about TG, and to see what your lab's doing? We have a laboratory website. It's very easy to remember. It's www.sullivanlab.com. That contains all of our latest publications, as well as some news articles and some more details about our research. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Bill, thanks for coming back again. And uh, and I appreciate it. Any last words for listeners? Or uh, you know, we talked about a lot of stuff, so... Yeah, we did. I I hope I didn't leave too many stones unturned or, uh, you know, confuse many people with jargon. But um, yeah, if there's if there's additional questions or topics you want to pursue in more detail, I'll be more than happy to come back on. Excellent. Well, thanks for coming. My pleasure. You've been listening to the Finding Genius podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.